You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're on a timeline for two things for sure, and that is the debt limit and also budget. We've probably been seduced by the notion that we can get off fossil fuels much quicker than can happen. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Biden was as knowledgeable about the issues around affordable housing as anybody out there ever been around. Excess government spending always causes inflation. Inflation hurts the poorest families in this country. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Democratic leaders say they are close to a deal. And no, this is not a rerun. This is a live broadcast. I know you've heard this before. It's almost a Friday night tradition these days. Now, after President Biden's town hall on CNN and his breakfast today with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, we'll have the latest from Capitol Hill from Bloomberg's Emily Wilkins ahead and from the White House, where today I spoke with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont, who's in Washington today to help push for a deal, meet with his fellow governors. We get into a number of issues and later my conversation with Kathleen Hicks, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, about efforts to fight climate change, which the Pentagon now calls an existential threat as it impacts the readiness of U.S. troops. The word from Speaker Pelosi is optimism. After she and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer met this morning with President Biden at the White House. We had a very positive meeting this morning. I'm very optimistic. See, like I said, Pelosi and Schumer talking about the infrastructure plan, the reconciliation deal, and there are still questions about how Democrats will pay for the spending plan after President Biden acknowledged in his CNN town hall last night that hiking the corporate tax rate, not likely, with opposition from Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, though Press Secretary Jen Psaki today says... Well, that's only one way that major companies can help pay for this plan. I would note that as it relates to the president's comments last night, he was answering a question. These town halls are conversations. That's what's so uh, endearing and engaging about them. But he was referring to the challenge of having the votes to move forward on raising the corporate rate, uh, not the ability to raise revenue through a range of other tax fairness proposals. Pelosi and Schumer were not the only ones visiting the White House today. A number of Democratic governors were there, too, as they arrived in town for a meeting of the Democratic Governors Association. And I was there for a bit. I spent some time talking with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont to get a state's view on all of this. A little bit different conversation than we've been having lately on Sound On. And I started by asking the governor what he learned today at the White House about a possible timeline. I think they're very optimistic that something is going to get passed. Something's going to get passed very soon. 
I was there with a lot of governors. I mean, I'm from an old state, Connecticut. We have old infrastructure. So the infrastructure bill, fixing our roads and bridges, absolutely vital. And I'm really pleased that daycare, child care, universal pre-K is staying in the final bill. Is that going to be the case? That's what they said today. Okay. I'm, I'm taking it home. Look, I'm a business guy. That's news so in itself, though. To getting people back to work is having um, that daycare and child care universally available. Sure. That's in the bill. Well, there are a lot of things in both bills. I'd like to maybe pick through them a little bit. In terms of the, the hard infrastructure bill, as we've come to call it, the bipartisan bill that passed the Senate, that would give almost $5.5 billion, I understand, to the state of Connecticut over the next five years or so. Would that make up for the lack of infrastructure spending that's coming out of your General Assembly? Yeah, that would help a lot. That would take uh, 10 minutes off your commute in each direction within the next few years. We can fix some of those old bridges where the trains slow down, they speed up, make a big difference. Look, we're a transit state. A lot of people in and out of New York or Boston, and uh, that's really invaluable for us. How much work is already approved? I understand you have billions of dollars worth of projects that are ready to go. How much of that work is already approved, and do you have the workers to do the jobs? Well, two questions. A, we got the design and engineering, the make ready. We're ready to hit the ground. Some of these grants, by the way, Joe, are competitive, so I want to get in front of the line. Your second question is about workers. That is an issue across the country, and we're working with the trades. We're training people right now, making sure we'll have people uh, ready when the jobs are ready to be filled. I understand you have an unemployment rate. I think it's 7.2% in Connecticut. You have more jobs open than you have people applying for work. So I wonder where you fall on this idea. It's been a big argument down here in Washington and probably in your capital as well. Are people staying home because of COVID? Are people staying home because of a lack of childcare? Or is it something different? Is it the enhanced benefits that kind of retrain people's minds when it comes to looking for work? We've been talking about that, we, the fellow governors, uh, you know, for the last two days. By the way, we're at 6.8%, so our unemployment rate is dropping. I'm really happy about that. But more to the point, I got 80,000 jobs that we can't fill. Uh, one thing I can tell you is we were hit, we were hit hard a year and a half ago. Uh, we suffered, along with New York and New Jersey, a lot of fatalities. A lot of our urban populations uh, know somebody that um, didn't make it through COVID. So I think there is some hesitancy. A lot of moms, I've got to make it easier for their kids to go to school, make sure they get daycare and childcare going forward. So I think it's a multifaceted to get people back to work. But the good news is our unemployment rate is going down and the number of people collecting unemployment is one-tenth what it was a year and a half ago. Do you feel like people have reimagined their careers or what it is to go to work every day? I think so. Don't you? Well, I don't know. This has been a real... You and I are here in person, but I think a lot of people found, hey, I kind of like doing it by Zoom. I think a lot of people found, hey, I'm going to try and start my own thing. Here's my opportunity to uh, upgrade my skills and do something different. Uh, But at some point, you've got to take a job. You've got to be able to feed your family. Yeah, well, we'll see, I guess, if that's going to happen in the new year. Will this plan help, I guess, is the question, because we've heard... In terms of the soft infrastructure, a real debate about what should be and what should not be in this bill. It appears we're giving up on, for instance, free community college, but holding on to pre-K education. And there may be a shorter time span for the child care benefit. What does that mean for the state of Connecticut and getting people back to work? Governors don't like a shorter time span. You know, these guys are negotiating and they say, uh, we'll have her for three years and then there's a cliff. That doesn't help. Mm -hmm. I think the child care, the daycare, the universal pre-K, I'd make that permanent. I think that ought to be part of what education is. 
And I don't think it should end after 12th grade. I think people need a certificate or an extra skill going beyond 12th to fill a lot of the jobs you need right now. I like the community college add-on. If it's not in this bill, though, you'll take what you can get. Absolutely. Okay, so there's a... Failure is not an option on this deal. I understand. That's the way most Democrats feel about it right now. You oppose a natural gas plant for the town of Killingly, Connecticut. And I know that town. I grew up in that area. I wonder if you're seeing from the clean energy proposals in the reconciliation plan, some of the incentives out there for solar and for wind, would there be enough in the reconciliation bill to make up for that lack of a gas-powered plant in Killingly? I think the market will determine whether they're going to build the last natural gas plant in Killingly. Um, we just made the biggest commitment in the history of the state to wind powers. And by the same time, we got millstones, so we got carbon-free nuclear power for another 15 years. So I think we have a pretty good balance with an emphasis upon reliable, affordable energy and green energy. To what extent are you working with your senators, Blumenthal and Murphy, to influence the outcome of this debate? Oh, like this. Yeah. You know, those guys are invaluable going forward. Uh, first and foremost, transportation. I go around the state. I try and tell people this is what a transportation bill would mean. You guys in Stanford, Connecticut, get down to New York City in 10 minutes less time. You were from Putnam, Connecticut originally, That's you know? Right. A little bit of bus service so you can get to and from community college at no cost. Mm -hmm. That's what we can offer if we get this infrastructure bill done. How critical is the timeline? We make a big deal about deadlines around here. Is it October 31st? Is it December 3rd? Do you care if it's done, uh, for instance, before the end of this year or, or sooner? I do. I, I think get it done. Let us plan accordingly. Let us make sure we have the people in place. What I don't like is this last-minute brinksmanship. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Uh, speaking of brinksmanship, it brings us back to this idea of what ends up in the bill. There have been a lot of conversations about what form that reconciliation bill should take and what the price tag should be. Is it $3.5 trillion? Is it $2 trillion? That'll go a long way to determining what the people of Connecticut receive from this bill. What are you willing to give up to get the rest, I guess is the question. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be $3.5 trillion. I think you've got to make a deal. Um, you know, as the speaker pointed out to us uh, this morning, you know, when FDR put forward a big plan, he had 99 more Democrats in the House of Representatives than Joe Biden has. This is a pretty thin margin, so you've got to make a deal that holds everybody together to get a majority done. But again, my priorities are daycare, childcare, universal pre-K, and if I can get some workforce training at the community colleges on the backside, that's a pretty good start for me. The expansion of Medicare was another component of that. The president talked about it in his uh, town hall last night on CNN. It's another one of these give and take uh, deals, right? You might get dental, but you might not get vision. Are you talking about some of the alternatives with the president and, and with your two senators, for instance, to get maybe those vouchers that President Biden talked about for vision care? I think vision care and hearing are really important. You lose touch with reality if you don't have that as a basic need. I think those two are affordable. I think they'll be in the final bill. I hope they will. Getting back to the matter of COVID, we talked about that for a moment with regard to the workforce. Have you considered an indoor mask mandate? No. And, and, no, if, and why not? Because we got 90% uh, of our adults are vaccinated, uh, increasingly at 12 to 18, a vast majority of them are. I think if you're vaccinated, uh, you should have a little more flexibility. But that said, if you're unvaccinated, you got to wear the mask. That's a rule in our state. 
So I left it up to the um, the mayors, and uh, maybe half our mayors for a while said, wear the mask indoors, everybody. And increasingly they're saying, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to. One more reason, if you need one more reason to get vaccinated. Yeah. Are you hearing from employers, those of larger scale, 100 employers or more, about this idea of a vaccine mandate or requirement for workers to go back into the office? Yeah, we've got um, our healthcare workers had to get vaccinated, no alternatives. Right. The rest of our public sector workers vaccinated or a testing option. And now we've got to think hard about some of our major manufacturing, including you know, the defense industry, big piece of Connecticut. They're vaccine only. And we've got to really maneuver that carefully to make sure we have enough workers to build submarines and jet engines and helicopters. Right. So if that mandate does take effect, that's something you would support? It would. I, I think a testing option may keep men on the job, women on the job, but we'll see what happens. Obviously, the vaccine is the best. Governor Lamont, thanks so much for talking with us today on Bloomberg. Fascinating view from outside the Beltway today on Sound On. Coming up, we'll talk about the state of affairs with reconciliation following a revealing conversation with the president last night on CNN. Emily Wilkins next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So it was a candid night out for President Biden. Did you see the town hall in Baltimore? May have actually helped to move the ball on Capitol Hill as he talked on CNN about the negotiations underway and the need to cut a deal. Are you close to a done deal? No, no problems. All done. <laughs> okay. President talking with Anderson Cooper there, who, well, took another swing at that same question. Are you close to a deal? I think so. You know, look, I've been a, I was a senator for 370 years. <laughs> and... Uh, I was never, I I was relatively good at putting together deals. Is this the toughest deal you've worked on? No, no. I think banning assault weapons is the toughest deal I worked on and succeeded. We'll see if he still feels that way by the time this is all done, one way or the other. And we bring in Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins, who spent a good chunk of her day on Capitol Hill chasing all of this down. Sounded like the Tonight Show in there last night, Emily. That was not canned laughter. Is this the boy who cried wolf or are they actually getting close to a deal is the question. So right now, where we're at in the process is that Democrats need to take that $3.5 trillion bill Mm -hmm. and trim it down to about $2 trillion, maybe a little less. Mm -hmm. What we heard this week was Democrats actually coming out and saying things like, this is how we're going to get there. We're not going to do tuition-free community college. The extended child care tax credits, they might only last for a year. We can, you know, that will save some money. And so in that sense, we are seeing progress. But let's just be really clear here. There is still so, so much that Democrats have left to figure out with this bill. Uh, The overall cost, uh, what's going to happen with the climate portion if they're not going to pursue uh, clean energy plower plants like they were initially talking about. What's going to happen with with the funding if they if a Senator Kirsten Senma doesn't go for raising the corporate tax rate, Democrats are going to have to find another way to raise $540 billion for this bill. And, you know, all these things, they have to be not only decided on from a policy standpoint and put together, but then actually agreed upon by Democrats. So reality check, no deal announced tonight. Not like because people were walking around saying that today. We're going to deal tonight by God. Anything could happen. What's the what's the realistic view after actually speaking with lawmakers today? This is weeks away. I mean, could they get could they could there be a vote next week or is that pipe dream? At this point, 
if you listen to the leaders in Congress and, and President Biden, they do talk about having a vote next week. Yeah. And, you know, I my crystal ball is currently in the shop. Fine. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly will or if that will or won't happen. Right now, it's not looking great because of how much they have left to get done. But also, let's consider what happened the last time that they had a, an arbitrary deadline. Yeah, when everyone worked all night. There was no vote. They did work all night, but you did see them start to get closer. You saw some agreements emerge. You saw everyone a little bit more be able to get on the same page for the process, for the top line number. And you did see progress being made. The pressure of that deadline, however arbitrary it was, did move things forward. And so I think what we're keeping an eye out for next week is how much progress is actually made. And I think part of the question is as well, if enough progress is made on that reconciliation package, that social spending and tax package. If Democrats can get a really solid framework that President Biden can put a stamp of approval on, could they go ahead and move that bipartisan infrastructure bill that so many lawmakers want to see uh, get signed into law so the money can start going out to roads, highways, bridges, broadband, all things that that lawmakers really of every party want to see happen. Some interesting comments uh, from the president about Senator Manchin and and Senator Sinema, for that matter, when he was in the middle of uh, answering a question about his proposed expansion to Medicare. Mr. Manchin is, uh, is, is opposed to that, as is, uh, um, I think, Senator Sinema is as opposed well. Opposed to all of them? Opposed to all three, mm-hmm. because they don't want, he says, he doesn't want to further burden Medicare so that because it will run out of its ability to maintain itself in X number of years. There's ways to fix that, but not interested in that part either. But look, Joe, Joe, Joe's not a bad guy. I mean, he's a friend. And he's always, at the end of the day, come around and voted. Joe's not a bad guy. He's a friend. And when he was talking about Kirsten Cinema Emily, he said she's as smart as the devil. Are, are these backhanded compliments, or does he actually have a good relationship with them? I mean, you've seen President Biden. I mean, he served with... Mansion mm-hmm. when when they were in the Senate together, um, obviously Kirsten Cinema has is a newer member to Congress, but you know Biden does pride himself on these relationships, on his ability to work with senators to sit down and to talk with them. God knows they keep going to the White House for meetings. They they do, and to be honest, when I talk to lawmakers, Democrats on Capitol Hill, they'll be like, "Look, we don't really agree with what Joe Manchin is doing. We're not super happy with the policies that he is and isn't backing up." Yeah. They say, "But he's out there. He's negotiating. He's being." transparent and he's being a part of the process. Now, there is a little more frustration with the senator from Arizona, Kirsten mm. Senma. The, the lawmakers feel like she's being a little less transparent. But according to President Biden, she is working with the White House. And I think this is just an acknowledgement. You're in a 50-50 Senate. Uh, any one of those senators could wind up blocking this bill overall. And so now now is not the time to to make enemies. I mean, you have seen Biden come out kind of in the past and, and, and you know, allude to them in a, in a not so friendly way. Um, but I think his tone sort of speaks to the fact that they are engaging, they are talking. Um, and, you know, we are we are learning more about Senator Sinema's positions on certain things. He did acknowledge, as I mentioned at the outset of the program, uh, corporate tax hike, not likely. They're now looking for alternatives. We only have about 30 seconds left, Emily, but that's going to be a big part of the conversation in the next couple of days. Absolutely huge. We're hearing things such as potentially an excise tax on companies that buy back their stocks. There's been some discussion about a tax on millionaires or billionaires. Lots of options out there, but going to be a a long road to figure out what needs to be done. Emily Wilkins will be back a little bit later on this hour. And coming up, we turn to what the Pentagon is calling an existential threat. It is not North Korea or Iran. 
Iran or China for that matter. It's climate. We'll talk about it with the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, coming up next here on Sound On. Stay with us. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1. To New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. The headline on the terminal, climate change damaging troop readiness. Pentagon's Hicks says coming up, we'll talk with her. That's Kathleen Hicks, the Deputy Secretary of Defense. About a new climate risk analysis out from the Pentagon, the risks to readiness and the funding needed to fix it. We've talked about the Biden administration's new approach to climate change. White House was out with a report just about a week ago showing the impact of climate specifically on the economy, everything from supply chains to the mortgage market. Well, you can add the military to that list. As the Pentagon releases a new risk assessment on climate change, we talk about the impact now, the impact on readiness and national security with the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks. Secretary, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much, Joe. So the Pentagon is treating climate change as an existential threat. Those words from Secretary Austin. And after reading through your new climate risk analysis, there's a lot here. Is the threat from climate as serious as those posed by North Korea or Iran? Well, Jeb, the the challenge for the Defense Department always is we have to manage multiple risks at any given time. We never really have the luxury of looking at only one thing. On climate change, it affects what we're called to do, the span, the range of missions we're called to do, our readiness to do it, and the costs for executing those missions. So it's, it's incredibly important that we have a strong understanding of the risks of climate change and that we have a strong plan in place to, uh, to deal with those risks. Has our troop readiness been impacted by climate change already? Sure has. Um, it, uh, climate change and extreme weather events caused by climate change uh, affect everything from the number of days we can be flying in the air and training. Um, it certainly affects, uh, for those installations that are have sea level or drought issues, it affects the ability to use those installations. We People often think of the coastlines. We had it off at Air Force Base in, in um, Nebraska several years ago, uh, a, a storm that uh, caused billions, that's with a B, billions of dollars of damage that took out the air, um, uh, the, the, the runway, excuse me, there at Offit. Um, so that sort of thing is happening every day. Um, and as I mentioned on just the fuel line piece and the en- endurance capability, for instance, of our aircraft absent having fuel, 
those sort of day-to-day -day readiness implications also can have significant implications for how we think about the way we fight in the future. You point out over the past several years that extreme weather has cost the Pentagon billions at, at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. What physical changes do you need to make at facilities like those? Have you gotten that far yet? Yeah, we have. I, I had a chance earlier this year to travel down to Florida, actually, and visit Naval Air Station Pensacola in the aftermath of Hurricane Sally to really see firsthand what's happening at many of these installations. Um, and you're seeing everything from, of course, roofs off buildings from high winds. You are seeing seawalls um, taken down. I mentioned we've seen runways taken out. Of course, Tyndall was uh, all but wiped off the map and has to be completely rebuilt. Wow. We have instituted in the Defense Department a installation assessment tool, which we're using um, for uh, 1,400 installations. And uh, that will really help us get a handle on what both the current effects and likely effects of climate change are, what the biggest risk factors are. Um, drought is a major one. I mentioned sea level is another mm -hmm. sea level rise. But there are others. Um, and that will also help us prioritize our asks to Congress for installation improvements to increase our resiliency. Well, that brings me to my next question, uh, yeah. and, and that's, you know, does the Pentagon have the funding to handle this, or, or are you now seeking that funding? I think you just answered me. We have always had to have funding for this kind of resiliency. Uh, the funding levels are increasing. The costs are rising. That is uh, certainly true. We will begin with this fiscal year 23 budget that we are putting out in the spring, that the president would put forward um, in spring of 2022, uh, the fullest accounting we can of what constitutes those sorts of costs. The department, as I said, has long paid these costs, but we haven't tagged them, if you will. We haven't identified them as related to climate. So I think going forward, we'll have a, a much more transparency for the American public and for the yeah. Congress around what the costs are for climate resiliency. I ask you that because, you know, we're, we're obsessed with negotiations on Capitol Hill right now, and we're reporting on them throughout the day in terms of the president's infrastructure agenda, and, and there are climate provisions in here. And I wonder how much of what the Pentagon wants to do in the coming years depends on the outcome of these talks, or, or how much of that is already underway, Secretary? We are absolutely part of building back better here in the United States, and we have significant infrastructure needs, um, just like, uh, you know, roads that uh, the public depends on. We depend on those roads. We depend on our ports being effective, um, railways, et cetera. For us, we also have costs that will not be captured um, in these infrastructure discussions. So when you think about electric vehicle charging stations for the fleets of vehicles, think about rental cars, but put them on, you know, military bases that are government vehicles that our, our um, civilians and military use to get from one place to another for official business. Mm -hmm. As those switch over, as all of American cars switch over to electric vehicles, for instance, we will need charging stations. Uh, that's one small example. Congress has required us to move to resilient electricity. So setting up microgrids, um, for all our installations, those are costs that will be beyond what's being discussed today in the infrastructure bill. But all of those um, advantages and improvements that are made on the commercial sector, mm -hmm. we will want to take advantage of all of that innovation for the military. Boy, these are big projects. And of course, you know, there, there's, there are two different approaches here, I suspect. One is 
mitigating the impacts of climate change. The other is lowering our own impact on climate. And it's been said that the Department of Defense is one of the biggest polluters in the nation simply through its scale. Your footprint is bigger than any corporation in the U.S. with thousands of facilities. Where are you investing, Secretary? How much do you need to invest to reverse your own impact on climate? Well, we're building that fiscal year 2023 budget right now How to much get roof? after what we think the costs are. Um, and you're absolutely right. Oh, uh, man, we're just going to get it. Very good. major emitter. Um, that's, that happens in a number of ways. The, the fuel that we buy, the uh, way in which we operate our military, um, think of planes, uh, think of our uh, tanks, et cetera. So bottom line, there are a lot of lines of effort in the adaptation strategy that we're we've just put out. Kathleen Hicks, Deputy Secretary of Defense, we thank you for being with us on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you, Joe. It's my pleasure. Coming up, we'll talk about what we just learned from the Secretary and focus more on the climate components of the reconciliation bill. With Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins, we'll also talk to Bloomberg climate reporter Peter Martin to help us digest and learn from what we just heard. Stay with us on Sound On. We'll check markets and traffic next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We just heard from the second in charge at the Pentagon. Climate change is damaging troop readiness. Based on what the Deputy Secretary of Defense just told us, it will cost a lot to keep up with Mother Nature. So let's talk about it. With our reporters panel, Emily Wilkins is back from Bloomberg Government, congressional reporter. We're also joined right now by Bloomberg Defense Policy reporter Peter Martin, who turned this into a story on the terminal. And Peter, we thank you for that. I just wonder what your reaction is to hear from the second in command at the Pentagon. Talk about troop readiness, in fact, already being damaged. This is not a threat in the future. It's it's already happening now. Is the Pentagon ready to handle this? Yeah, I think it's, it's striking the emphasis that they're putting on this and almost ranking climate change up there with North Korea and Iran as threats and, and, and kind of emphasizing the, the ability, of, the, the, the potential impact this could have on the ability of the U.S. to wage war in the future. It, it shows just, uh, just how high a priority the administration faces on it. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what this might cost? I, I'm not sure that the Pentagon has, has actually crunched the numbers yet, but we're talking billions, right? Right. We're talking very considerable amounts of money. I mean, everything from uh, from installing, uh, you know, electric vehicle charging stations through to making sure that U.S. Um, military facilities are equipped to handle the, the challenges of extreme weather and rising sea levels is going to be a hefty price tag. Yeah. Uh, Emily is with us in studio. While I'm talking to Emily, uh, by the way. Uh, Peter, maybe you can jump off that speakerphone and we can get a better uh, sound quality for you to actually hear what you're saying. This is a big deal, Emily, across the government, right? It's coming to this, what, what the Biden administration likes to call its all-of-government approach. And the Pentagon is, is, of course, a big part of that, as I just mentioned with the deputy secretary. It is one of the biggest polluters of, a, you know, kind of a single entity more than any corporation in this country. And it's also dealing with its own risks all over the world, those climate risks that other countries aren't necessarily addressing. 
That's absolutely right. I mean, you've seen the military just be very blunt and forthcoming with the fact that they are hit, being hit hard by the impacts of climate change. And you're also seeing the Biden administration try and take, you know, multiple tacks. They've put out a lot of executive orders, you know, asking various departments of the government, Pentagon, Department of Defense included, to find ways to be more climate friendly, to mm-hmm. not invest in polluters, things of that nature. But, but really, you know, the big stuff, the big long term stuff that's going to stick, it needs to be done through legislation. And that's why the provisions in the social spending and tax bill that deal with climate are so important. And why there was a lot of discussion right now about what's going to happen now that one of the key provisions, uh, the clean energy, doesn't seem like it's going to be able to make the final bill. So let's get into that. That This this was a a pretty big component uh, of the original plan for reconciliation, right? It was essentially a a plan to incentivize utilities to use green energy and, in fact, penalize them when they do not. When you're the senator from West Virginia, that's not a great idea, apparently. It's not. And that's why this provision is having so much trouble right now is Mm -hmm. because Senator Joe Manchin does not approve of it. Now, when I talked to Democrats who had come back from meeting with Biden earlier this week, they were kind of resigned that it didn't look like this program was going to make the final cut. But they said that the key thing for them is that we need to be on track for the U.S. to meet that emissions goal of a 50 percent reduction in emissions by the end of the decade, so 2030. And lawmakers said, look, as long as we can come up with policies that will reduce emissions, then we will be supportive of a final bill, even if it doesn't include this one program. Uh, We're back on the line uh, with Peter. I appreciate uh, your doing that for us, Peter, to reconnect. Uh, We just want to hear you a little bit better because the Pentagon is looking at this truly from a global perspective. It's not limited to the borders of our country here, whether you're in Guam or whether you're in the Middle East. This is something that the Pentagon has to deal with no matter where it is or where we're deployed in the world. How do you manage that when you're essentially at the mercy of other countries' policies as well? Well, you know, what was what was really interesting, I thought, was the way that Deputy Secretary Hicks put this in the context of the, the rise of China, right? So this is it's going to be a, a threat which uh, is seen on U.S. military installations at home and overseas. It's going to be something that requires National Guard deployments, um, but it's also going to be something that, that might create instability in regions like the Middle East and potentially in Asia that, that the Pentagon worries China could take advantage of. So it's, you know, it's not just a kind of nice to have, but from the the perspective of the Pentagon, this is a really crucial national security issue. Is it, Peter, something that the Pentagon will do through the next defense spending bill? uh, Or how how is that funding going to be generated here in Washington? I I think they still need to figure that out. But, you know, what's clear is that it's going to be it's going to be a hefty price tag. And we're talking about installing electric vehicle charging stations. We're talking about making sure that military bases um, are equipped to handle rising sea levels. This is, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money. Peter Martin, Bloomberg Defense Policy Reporter. Many thanks for chiming in. Let's get you back in studio next time. And thanks for your coverage today on that. Emily Wilkins, this is the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki talking about this today. He has proposed the largest investment in addressing the climate crisis in American history. So pay no attention to that uh, to that utility plan. What what alternatives are there and can they actually make up the difference in, in terms of climate 
change mitigation? That That's the big question here, because if they can't, there are some lawmakers who have indicated that they will vote against the bill. Yeah. And really, right now, we don't have a very clear idea of what some of the new proposals would actually mean. It could be uh, different block grants that also promote emissions reduction, but maybe don't penalize some of the power plants in Senator Joe Manchin's home state of West Virginia. Uh, it could mean funding current other programs in the bill that are to address client climate change and just putting more money into those. Once again, this is why earlier in the show we were talking about the likelihood of this package being done by this weekend or even by next week. Right. This is why there's not a lot of optimism that that's actually going to happen. I mean, sure, you'll you'll hear the Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, you know, be very optimistic, very positive on this. But for those of us who are really watching this process closely, we're realizing how much they have left to do here. Well, it's fascinating. We go from one week we're talking about the, the big the big jam up is how we're going to pay for it right then it becomes expansion of medicare but now i guess ironically is the only word i can find as the president prepares to go to the cop 26 summit in scotland that's what just that's a week away it's a week from tomorrow or something that he's heading overseas yeah this is what's holding things up now this is the one thing he wants done before he goes to scotland Yes. I mean, this is what President Biden wants to go to Scotland, go in front of other countries and say, hey, the U.S. is back. We are back as a leader in climate change. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to make that case when you have to point to a domestic agenda <laughs> where things aren't apart. getting done, things aren't being agreed to, your entire plan's being stymied by one senator from, from West Virginia. Yeah. And so that is something that has come up this week when I've been talking with lawmakers who have mentioned again and again that they want to make sure that Biden's going there with a really strong hand and a strong argument to make. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those things where if they can't necessarily get a bill done, but they can get a framework done, that might lend Biden some of that credibility. And also important to know, I mean, there are a lot of lawmakers who are going to be going to this conference as well, both Democrats and Republicans. I was at uh, Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy's presser this week or yeah. listening in, and he actually made a point of talking about climate change and the importance of climate change from the Republican leader of the house boy we've i guess we're beyond the science part of this and actually on how to manage it is that fair to say Yes. I mean, even if you look at Republicans right now, yes, there are some Republicans who still, you know, deny that that climate change is brought about by humans. Yeah. But you actually saw a, a group of Republicans form their own sort of Republican climate caucus. And when I talked to them about it, they said, you know, Republicans need to have a seat at the table for some of these negotiations. Mm -hmm. Like we have our own ideas about how to best solve these problems. We can't ignore them. We can't pretend they don't exist. But we also want to come at them in a way that's pro-business and is helpful for, for companies that are also trying to figure out what their path forward is. All right. So back to reality check time. Emily Wilkins, it's just you and me now. Let's pretend nobody's listening. What happens next week? Are we going to see any votes Monday, Tuesday, like some were talking uh, a big game about earlier today? Or is it more like, uh, well, we got a framework and we've heard that before by the end of the week? At this point, I mean, you'll see votes next week, but the question is, of course, will you see the vote on the infrastructure? Will you see the vote on the social spending plan? Mm -hmm. At this point, Could you see a vote on infrastructure without a real bill on reconciliation? So I've been asking lawmakers about that because at first progressive lawmakers were like, absolutely not. Right, it's got to yeah. pass the Senate. It's got to pass the House. <laughs> but the head of the progressive caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, actually seemed to tell reporters this week that there might be some leeway there. She's like, you know, if there is a, a, a 
really solid framework. Uh, I don't know exactly how solid it needs to be, but a key thing also seems to be that President Biden signs off of it. That President mm. Biden okay. says, I'm happy with all of this. And I talked to even some some members, a member of the, the squad, a very, a very progressive uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman, mm-hmm. and he said, yeah, you know, if, if we get a framework that Biden can sign off on, I think that's how they might be able to get a vote this week if they have something that that's far more detailed than what we're seeing right now. Well, that's fascinating. So that's really Joe Biden, the mediator, right? He's in the room saying, OK, I'm the one saying this is the real framework. And P- and the Democrats are lining up behind him. They realize that he's president. They realize he's won and they see it as a safe bet on how to move forward. The straight scoop from Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg government Congress reporter. And of course, a dear friend of this broadcast who spent some time in this chair. Have a great weekend. I hope you're not working. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.